Welcome. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon. Welcome to all of you and those joining us online. Uh, We miss you. Well, we're glad that we can all gather here together. We're looking at the Gospel of John together. I have a few brief announcements before we dig into that. One is just, I know some of us uh, who came for Sunday school either left behind our, our Grace Basics book or we wanted a Grace Basics book. If you want them, they're in the basket on the right as you go out through those doors. So if you need a Grace Basics book, there are some up here too at this basket on the way out. So feel free. We've got lots of copies. If you need a Grace Basics book, grab one. And the other one is a brief reminder that tonight is our family worship night. So feel free to come and join us again tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to be praising God and hearing from his word and getting to spend some time together just loving one another and enjoying each other's company. Those things being said, let's turn our attention to John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. If you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to open it or turn it on, get to that appropriate spot, get to John 13, 21 through 28. And before I even get going there, I have to do a little bit of introduction. It's not our main concern today to say much at all about Judas. But it is unwise to speculate on why Judas betrayed Christ beyond what is written. We know a few things from the Gospel of John. We know that Judas loved himself and he loved his money more than he loved Christ. We also know probably because of his background that he wanted an immediate and violent overthrow of the Roman government. And those two things warn us that the love of money or the love of comfort or the love of power can, if unrestrained, destroy our love for Christ. It goes by almost without a word. We quote it often to ourselves, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And here is one of those examples. The second thing is that we can note that Satan entered into him. This likely means that for a time, as a result of his hardened heart, bent in purpose to sin, and in order to fulfill God's holy decree, God handed Satan, uh, handed Judas over to his sin's effects and to Satan's rule. I say we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because the main idea of this text, no matter how interesting it might be to think about Judas, The main idea of this text is not about Judas. The main idea of this text centers on five ways Jesus' work on the cross glorifies God and brings about a new life of love among God's people. The main idea today is how Jesus' work on the cross glorifies God and brings about a new life of love among God's people. So we're going to break this into five steps. The first one, and we, we may, if you've been in this series, you, you're going to recognize this one. The first one is, the cross is glorious. The cross is glorious. So we're going to be mostly focusing on verses 31 and following. So let your eyes come down to 31. Look at verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, that being Judas... Jesus said, 
now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So, it's a complicated sentence, and because, honestly, today is a communion Sunday, we're not even going to focus entirely on this because we're going to focus our attention on the main idea. But now, here, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now refers to the cross. Now is this hour that Jesus has been speaking about, all the way back in verse 1. It's the goal of Christ's ministry. And it's hard for us because we are so far removed from the scandal of the cross to see just how strange it would be that the ultimate symbol of shame in the ancient world is, in the purpose of God, the moment of his greatest triumph and glory over sin. We have to hold these two realities close to each other, that yes, the cross is in fact shameful. There, there is shame in the cross. However, God is greater than that shame, and his glory is revealed in the cross. So, the next phrase makes this plain, and I've kind of put up brackets here to help you see. If God is glorified in Christ, God will also glorify Christ in himself, God the Father, and he will glorify Christ at once. So this is the moment that the Father is going to glorify Christ and he is going to be glorified by Christ. This means that the cross is the supreme act of righteous obedience that God required. The cross is the supreme act of righteous obedience that God required. It displays God's nature by satisfying his justice and at the same time revealing his love. The penalty for sin is absorbed and God's love in absorbing the penalty for sin is displayed simultaneously. It shows us his mercy that though we deserve his wrath, yet he puts forward his son. It shows us his grace because he puts forward his son on behalf of undeserving sinners. And secondly, we also see that it ransoms his entire church from the rule and reign of sin and death. Such an act such an amazing, almost inconceivably good act of absolute and perfect obedience deserves the greatest honor and our highest praise. And we can think, your mind shoot forward to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, verse 12. All the saints and voices, 10,000 upon 10,000, are praising God and crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, friends, the cross is glorious. The cross is what causes the 10,000 upon 10,000 voices to rise up and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is what makes it possible for Christ to open the seals of the scroll and to read out the purpose of God. Oh, friend, what are some applications? One, do not be ashamed of the cross. 
do not be ashamed of the cross. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in 2 Timothy 1.8-10, he commands his adopted son, Timothy, who is facing persecution for his faith, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Friends, the world will labor to paint the cross and to paint your faith in the cross as shameful. They will try and cause you to be embarrassed about Jesus, to feel as though you are foolish. But friends, the cross is glorious do not be ashamed to live, to stand in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul will say in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's one of the strongest statements that Paul makes. The world has no claim on my allegiance, and I will not be ashamed of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. I will proclaim his gospel even if the whole world stood against me. We must not let the empty treasures of this world or its fading regard outstrip our heart's esteem for the greatest of all treasures, one at the cross, the person, the word, and the work of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the cross. By it, you were saved from hell. By it, you were ushered into God's unending favor. Instead, break the hold of lesser glories by laying hold of the greater one. Break the hold of lesser glories, lesser treasures, lesser riches, lesser fames by laying hold of the greater ones. The second application is fix your eyes on Jesus in order to endure in Christian obedience. Don't be ashamed of the cross. Fix your eyes on Jesus so as to endure. Hebrews 12, 2 through 4 says we should be looking to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame. So there is real shame, but he looked down on that shame for the sake of the joy that he received and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you're discouraged, think of what Stephen sees as the whole entire assembly cries for his execution. He says, I see Jesus seated on the right hand of the Most High. Oh, that vision... That vision is able to keep you in the face of temptation. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when you look at the cross, you see the enormity of God's glory. When you look at the cross, you can be strengthened to endure temptation. When we see that Christ, by God's power, was able to endure the worst that this world could offer and that God rewarded him with eternal joy and unending glory, we are strengthened in our own struggle. Are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with the world? Are you struggling with doubts? Turn 
to the cross. Thirdly, so don't be ashamed of the cross. Look at Jesus to endure and rest and rejoice in the total victory of the cross. I'm spoiling next week a little bit when I say that as Jesus moves on in chapter 14, he's going to be providing numerous assurances to his disciples who are immediately troubled by what he says here. They are, they are troubled, they're frightened, and he just starts stacking up assurances to console them. So friends, when you are laid low with doubt, when you are struggling with sorrow, when pain is at its worst, when grief seeks to take your heart, look to the cross and remember that it was there that Colossians 2, 13 through 15 tells us, God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's how God will glorify Christ and how God is glorified by Christ in the cross. The cross cancels the record of our sin. The cross raises us to new life. The cross gives us right standing with God. The cross is utterly, wonderfully, incomparably glorious. Consequently, second big idea, only Christ can achieve the victory of the cross. And you'd almost think this is needless to say, but our entire culture and frankly the whole world has manufactured every religion to say precisely the opposite. To say, yes, you can achieve what is achieved at the cross. But the Christian faith says, no, no one of us can do this. Only Christ can achieve the victory of the cross. Look at verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. And you will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. No, because... Chapter 14, he's going to tell them that they actually do know where he's going and they're going to get there, that he's not referring to heaven. He's not referring to the next kingdom. What he means is where he's going is the cross. And they can't do the cross. What the cross accomplishes, they can't do. They can't come. While the Christian life in its most extreme form, and for many people across this globe, even this day, while the Christian life in its most extreme form may cost us our life, we must never imagine that the cross, as we speak of it here, is a task that anyone can do but Christ. Jesus does not mean that the disciples cannot or that the disciples will not experience a martyr's death. Surely most of them will. No, he means that only he can perform this greatest work of perfect obedience to the will of God. Only he can atone for the sins of the world. Only he can conquer death. Only he can save from sin. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become 
the righteousness of God. However admirable it may be that Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus gently rebukes his and our own weak and sinful nature because we incline to say to Christ, naturally and intuitively, we want to say, and I can do it too. I, I too can please God fully and, and completely. I, I, can do, I can go where you go, Jesus. His response, I imagine being gentle. Will you lay down your life for me? We are simply not able to do what only Christ can do for us or others. Don't try to do it for yourself. Don't try and do it for another person. The cross that carries the sin of the world is a burden that only the Son of God can carry. And if you try and live up to the measure of the cross by a life of good deeds or even a martyr's death, you will be crushed by its weight. You'll be crushed first to despair and ultimately into hell. But if you put your faith in Christ and his cross and live out of the abundance of grace that is procured by his cross, then you will know the power of his victory and you'll be sustained by his life, which brings us to our third major point. The cross brings about Christian obedience and love. So the cross is glorious. Only Christ can achieve the victory of the cross. The cross is what brings about Christian obedience and love. So look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now Jesus may here simply be referring to how Peter will ultimately share in a death like his. When we get to chapter 21, and yes, we will eventually get to chapter 21. When we get to chapter 21, Jesus will tell Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you are old, someone else will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And he says he said this to show him by what kind of a death he was going to die. So we know that Peter will ultimately follow Christ in this way. But I think that this passage is emphasizing not so much his physical obedience, but a figurative sense. Principle that I've been fleshing out these last three times, and we'll do so again, that we can only follow the way of Christ after we have been touched by the sacrifice of Christ. We can only follow Christ after we have been touched by the sacrifice of Christ, or that in the cross, God not only saved us from a life of sin and his wrath, but for a life of loving obedience. He didn't just save you from wrath and sin. He saved you for a life of loving obedience. We can't treat this thoroughly today, but this idea that the cross is what ransoms us from sin to new life and to new love is key to Christian maturity. And we see it all over the New Testament. There's just a few examples, and then we're going to take a field trip to look at one of them more closely. 
Romans 8, 3 through 4 would say this. Colossians 1, says, He, that is Christ, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross. I'm, we know that's where that happened. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did you see what happened there? By his death, he reconciled you. You were reconciled to God the moment Christ died. And he did this to purchase for you a holy and blameless and above reproach life. That you'll be presented to him sanctified. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, you know what that one is, the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He achieved something that's going to be worked out in your life. The clearest place to find this, I think, is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and following. So, if you've got your Bibles, we're going on a field trip. This is, you get to know your pastor a little bit better by me doing this, because I think this will help us understand John. 1 Peter 1, 14 and following. 1 Peter 1, 14 and following. Now, I've, in the quote that you're going to see up here is a lot of ellipses because there's a lot of words here, and I'm trying to condense it for the relevant information. Peter says to the church, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then moving on. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, what's the conclusion? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And if you were paying attention when we were reading John, you now, you probably see the connection. There's something about the work of the cross and how it ransoms us from a life of futile living to a life of holy living that, that results in pure love. So let's think through this passage briefly here, okay? First thing to note, one, holiness is a command. It's never a suggestion, it's a command. He says in verse 15, be holy. Just as here, Christ will command his disciples to love one another. He doesn't suggest it, he commands it. This new commandment I give you, love one another. So, Holiness and love are tied together. Secondly, the basis for our holiness is God's holiness. In verse 16, he says, be holy for I am holy, or because, or out of my holiness. Be holy for I am holy. That God is holy, if you came this morning to Grace Basics, you'd know this, that God is holy means that he is utterly other. He is separate from all that is finite and everything that is defiled. He is transcendent. He is above everything. He is pure. 
is undistilled. There's no mixture in him. Consequently, he is the measure of everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that has value. Piper put it this way, and I thought I couldn't do better. For God to be actively holy, therefore, is for all his words, attitudes, and actions to be in perfect harmony with the infinite value of his transcendent purity. That is what it means for God to be holy. It means that everything he says and does is in perfect harmony with the infinite value of his transcendent purity. So thirdly, so holiness is a command. The basis of our holiness is God's holiness. Thirdly, our holiness derives from, it comes from, and it reflects his like a mirror. This means that our attitudes, our attitudes, our words, and our actions should be in harmony with his infinite worth. If for him to be holy is that all his words and attitudes and actions are in accordance with his infinite value and worth, then for us to be holy, because for us to be holy is like him to be holy, it means all of our words, all of our attitudes, all of our actions should reflect his infinite worth. Therefore, for our lack of holiness results from sinful ignorance. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Unholy desires flow from ignorance. Now we ask, ignorance of what? Ignorance of the worth of God. Because remember, holiness is all your attitudes and actions being in accordance with the infinite worth of God. So your Sinful ignorance is an ignorance of that worth. You don't see God as worthy. You don't see him as the most amazing, most precious thing. And to the degree that you don't see that, you live in accordance with that conviction. And you live sinfully, vainly. The greatness of God, the all-satisfying beauty of God, specifically in this passage, in both passages, Ignorance of the glory of his cross. Because what's right at the heart of this is the cross. The cross is the effective connection between your former life of sinful ignorance and your new life of holy love. The cross not only ransoms us from futile ways, look at verse 18 through 19, you were ransomed from the futile ways. How? Not with perishable things, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ. The cross purchases you from sinful ignorance and for what? Holy conduct. For a new life. Look down to the conclusion in verse 22. For a sincere, brotherly love. So friends, it is by the work, the glorious work of the cross. And as we come to know and share in the cross by faith that our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our words can follow after Christ. 
It is God's purpose to change us by the work of his cross progressively from a life of futility to a life of love. Friends, it may be true that Jesus is foreshadowing that Peter's nascent desire to follow him even to death will not be realized until after the work of the cross. It could be that he's just speaking historically, saying, nope, I need to die first, and then you later on temporally will die yourself. But I think he's teaching Peter also something deeper. I think he's teaching Peter and us that we need the cross in order to follow him. That Peter, absent the work of the cross in his life, could not follow him and would not. That Peter's obedience and imitation of Christ can only occur as a result of the work of the cross taking root in his heart, as it must in ours. Or another way of saying this is that as our sinful ignorance of God's glory shrinks, and as our love for his glory grows by meditating on and trusting in the work of the cross, a new life of love begins to grow. Thus forth, Christian obedience and love reflects the cross. I've probably over-belabored this point, but I know that many of us grew up probably, or we are at least surrounded by a world that insists that the main point of this passage is Jesus' commandment. And that you should live up to Jesus' commandment. And I want to make sure that not a single person manages to navigate the ministry of Grace Community Church, imagining that it is even possible for you to live up to the commandment of Jesus Christ. I want every one of us to live out of the work of Jesus Christ and to see his life fulfilled in us. This commandment comes as a consequence. Look at verse 34. Having said all these things, afterward you will certainly follow me. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this commandment is new in the sense that it intensifies the greatest commandment. You'll remember that the Pharisees ask him, love God and love your neighbor to what degree? As yourself. But what does Christ do? No, you will love your neighbor, you will love one another to the degree and in the manner of and after the model of my love for you in the cross. You'll see this show up across the New Testament all over the place. One place that's just quick to think of is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. The pattern of the cross is the baseline model of Christian love. So we, we could spend three, four sermons on this. We're just going to say three brief things. One, our love consequently will almost necessarily involve sacrifice. Christian love almost necessarily involves sacrifice if it's cruciform love. It could be because we'll be persecuted for our love. 
but it's probably more simply that loving service and obedience to Jesus will almost certainly cost you something. It may cost you money. It may cost you time. It may cost you freedom. It may cost you the idea of who you thought you could have been. It may have cost you a career path. It can cost you a lot of things, but our love should reflect the costliness of the cross. The second thing that we can see from how our love should reflect the cross is that our love should encourage and strengthen. Our love should encourage and strengthen. If you remember back to when I quoted Hebrews 12, I said, if we look at Jesus Christ who endured the cross, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted in our pursuit of obedience. So there's something about the work of Christ on the cross that when we look at his love for us on the cross, we are made stronger we are made able to endure temptation. We are made readier to perform the spiritual acts that God calls on us to do. So, so, if our love to one another should be like the love of Christ on the cross to his people, our love should strengthen and encourage one another. You should walk away from a meeting with a brother or sister in Christ feeling better able to face temptation, better able to endure the world weariness that you're gonna encounter, better able to walk with joy in the face of suffering, and when you're going to meet with a brother or sister in Christ, know that they need that. They need your encouragement. Our love should have a similar effect. We should walk away stronger and better able to resist sin and persevere in faith than we were before. Thirdly, our love should extol the glory of God. If the cross is the now that glorifies God, then our love should glorify God. If the cross displays God's nature and goodness, then our love should display God's nature and goodness. Our relationships, our actions, our kindnesses, all these things should extol the glory of God. Go to meet with a brother or sister. Know that what they need most of all is to see God glorious. That's what they need. That will comfort their flagging heart. That will cause them to be better able to endure temptation. That will move them to pray. That will move them to love someone else. That will make them able to sacrifice their time and their love and their energy and their effort for the glory of God. Fifth. And finally, cross-centered love then is the basis for evangelism. He connects these two realities. New commandment I give to you. And if and when and to the degree that living out of the reality of the cross, you experience the fullness of this new commandment, something will happen. He says, by this, in verse 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we live out the love that we received in Christ's cross, then that love will authenticate the gospel that we preach. There are lots of good proofs for Christianity. 
Apologetics is a worthy pursuit. The best proof of Christianity is cruciform love. Jesus says, you know, the tax collectors, they love their friends. Now, there's another kind of love. People all over the world have been trying to live up to, but can never achieve until and unless they are born again by the love of Christ working out through his cross in their life. And that love, that love is a different kind of love altogether. And that love is a better proof than any other proof. If the way that we love each other resembles the cross of Christ, if we pause in our hearts and in that moment when you're just about to get defensive with your wife, or in that moment when you're just about to lose your temper with your employee, or that moment, I don't even know how to apply it more broadly, and you say, but Christ has been patient with me. How patient has he been with me? The cross patient. How loving has he been with me? The cross loving. How kind has he been with me? The cross kind. What is his gentleness to me? Infinite. What debt have I been forgiven at the cross of Christ? An unpayable debt. I could never pay it. I could spend lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime. I would never pay the debt at the cross of Christ. And he has given it to me freely. In that moment, as your heart grasps that reality, I believe that as you trust in that work, in the work of Christ, that his gospel tells us that a small little bit of that new love will grow in your heart. And you will be better able to respond to that person, not perfectly perhaps, but just a degree, maybe more, that approximates the love that God gave you at the cross until that last day when we stand before him. And every impulse of our heart will only and always be cruciform love. Friends, if the way we love each other resembles the cross of Christ, that makes the cross look glorious. And if people come to see the cross as glorious, they'll begin to travel out of the darkness of their sinful ignorance and into the glorious light and knowledge of God's gospel grace. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, do now a work that I am incapable of doing. Preach a better sermon than I could ever preach by your Holy Spirit. Lift up your Son, Jesus Christ, as glorious. Cause us to see the glory of his cross and to set our minds on it and to begin to work in our hearts by degree or by great measure. Pour out your love on us that we might be changed so that we could see you more fully and love others more completely. Ask it for Jesus' sake. Friends, we're now gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a special practice that is reserved for Christians, those who by faith discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. In this practice of remembrance, it is good for us to take a moment 
prepare our hearts to receive the Lord by faith. So let us just for a moment, maybe this will be the most immediate application of the sermon I could conceive of, let us set our minds on the glory of Christ's cross. Let us ask him to strengthen us in the knowledge of his glory and grace so that we might more fully love God and one another, that all our life, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds would be a living testimony to the gospel of his glory and grace. So let's prepare our hearts in prayer, and then I will pray a prayer of confession. Let's pray. Most holy Father, holy Lord, I have sinned times without number, been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find thy mind in thy word, of neglect to seek thee in my daily life. My transgressions and shortcomings present me with a list of accusations, but I bless thee that they will not stand against me. For all have been laid on Christ. Go on now to subdue my corruptions and grant me grace to live above them. Let not the passions of the flesh nor the lustings of the mind bring my spirit into subjection, but do thou rule over me in liberty and power. Strengthen me so that I do not turn aside, but follow you to the very end. The final victory belongs to you. Brothers and sisters, God's word assures us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, if you truly repent and trust in Jesus, be at peace. God has forgiven your sin. We do this practice because in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink you all of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me.
For as Paul tells us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here at Grace, we practice what is called an open communion table, and that means that anyone who believes the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve to die, and God raised him as a promise of your eternal life. And if you believe that he will return in glory to judge and restore all things, if you believe these things, you are welcome at the table of the Lord. So we will come forward to receive the elements today as a sign of our individual commitment to Christ. But we encourage you to wait to partake of those elements until we can do so as one body together as a sign of our unity in Christ. And just so you know, the bread that we have prepared today is free of all common allergens, gluten, nut, dairy. If you need a specific list, you can see one at that back table. We have three tables, two in the front, one in the back, and we'd encourage you to approach the front tables by using these side aisles and to approach the back table by using the center aisle here. Our musicians are gonna lead us in a song as we come forward to receive the elements and then I will come up and lead us in participating in communion as one body. Friends, the table of the Lord is for the people of the Lord. So feed on him in your hearts, by faith, and with thanksgiving. Come, receive of God's grace.